In our worship service, we speak and say things to God, praise Him, give our offerings, pray. We also come in our worship to hear God. And that takes place in the midst of the reading and preaching. So listen as I read God's word from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God and the Spirit. About midway through this letter that Peter wrote to the churches, and I want to just remind you that Peter was one of Jesus' followers. He was with him as his disciple, listening to his teaching, observing his manner. And there are many things in this letter that I've called your attention to where Peter just takes those teachings of Jesus Christ and he says, here's how they are applied in this situation that you are facing right now. And that situation is one that has involved quite a bit of suffering and persecution. And so, in this light, I've called your attention to the fact that Jesus had said, take up your cross and follow after me. There is a call of Jesus Christ that has a burden of suffering for his name's sake. And much of Peter has been dealing with that. In fact, the verses previously have been full of that. But that call to... Take up your cross includes more than just persecution or suffering. It includes what this passage has. It has a call to live a holy life. It comes through in laying down your own life, laying down your own desires to do the will of God. This is vitally connected to who Jesus is, what he has done for you. And it's vitally connected to the union that you have with Jesus Christ. So I'm stating this this message's theme in a somewhat provocative way. Christ has set you free, therefore live free from sin. Christ has set you free from sin, therefore live free from sin. I want to start with that work of Jesus Christ, that Christ's death for you enables you to die to sin. Peter starts with Jesus' death on the cross. He is the one who suffered for us in the flesh, says Peter in verse 1. We call this the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. I hope you know what a substitute is. 
I wonder if the uh, the children have ever gotten uh, involved in either a game of soccer or softball or something like that, and you either get tired or, or hurt. And what does your coach do? Or you co- your coach says, time out. I'm sending in a substitute for you. Someone to take your place so that the game can go on. When we talk about Jesus being a substitute, I want you to know that Jesus took your place. When he died on the cross, he took your place and suffered the punishment that you deserve because of sin. This is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And that's where Peter starts. He starts there with what Jesus has done. But he doesn't stop there. His point is not just our justification, but our sanctification. He goes on, he says, Therefore, since Jesus suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. This is where Peter takes that work of Jesus Christ and presses it deep down into our souls, deep down into the experience of the Christian life that is going to address the suffering that we go through, will address the anxiety and the fears, the opposition that we we face in this world. It's because Jesus suffered in the flesh for you. We sometimes talk about this in the terms of the penalty and the power of sin. So there is a penalty that Jesus frees you from. That's your justification. There's more than that because when Jesus died from you, you also now have died to sin. You have been set free from it. This is our sanctification. And it's based on this truth that that Peter calls you to action. In fact, he uses very strong words to say this. It's military language. It's a call to arms. The enemy's at the gate. Arise, fire, foe. Man the gates. It's time to go to battle. This is the language that Peter uses of the Christian life. It's a call to arms. And to be sure, this is not a physical call to arms. We don't take up uh, the weapons of this world. Instead, understand this as the the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. And this is what, uh, what Peter has in mind when he calls you to recognize that we live in an evil day. And he calls you to stand fast in that evil day, being armed with the weapons that God has given to us, that spiritual armor you might think of from Ephesians. But it starts, very interestingly, with having the right mindset. Arm yourselves with the same mind. Well, just what mind is this that we are armed with? And how is it that it contributes to our standing fast in an evil day? Peter answers, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. The mind that you are to have is the mind of Christ, the one who has suffered in the flesh for us. And this is something of a transition statement, and there's a, 
that Peter blends together the work of Jesus Christ for us, who has suffered and died, uh, and our own dying in Jesus Christ as well. And to be very clear, Peter is not saying that Jesus had to suffer in order to be cleansed from sin. He is the righteous Son of God, one who has never sinned. He is the just one that Peter talked about earlier, the just who laid down his life for the unjust. But in this light, he's calling to attention what Jesus did, that there is an end to sin by the death of Jesus Christ. I really like the way that Paul describes our sins as a legal document that stands against you. For those of you who have a mortgage, you might come to the end of that mortgage and throw a party. You have a mortgage-burning party. It's because that mortgage is a debt. It stands against you. You owe this to the bank. You have to pay it back. What Paul says is that Jesus took that legal document that stands against you, and he nailed it to the cross. There's a context there. When people would pay off a debt in in Jesus' day, that debt would be nailed maybe to the doorframe of the house, saying, this debt is finished. It's paid in full. It no longer binds you. Just think of that, about what Jesus has done for you in regard to your debt of sin. He has taken it and he has nailed it to the cross, paying the penalty in full. There's that penalty of sin, which also releases you now to live for Christ, since that document since that debt no longer has dominion over you, no longer has power to make you pay back for our new creations. That's why there's a call to arms there. Having been justified by faith, pursue holiness, pursue sanctification. You said this earlier in chapter 2, Peter did, speaking of Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. So Christ has suffered for us, but here's where this transition is going on, because Peter implies that we also suffer. How is it that we suffer in the, fl- in the flesh? Well, the answer is that it is in your union to Jesus Christ, that as Jesus is, so are you. As Jesus suffered, by faith you do as well. Think of what I read from Paul in Romans chapter 6, about how since Jesus died, you also have died. Think of Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Not really and physically, only Jesus was crucified, but 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And even there, you can begin to see both the justifying work of Jesus applied to you and then this, this newness of life that is, is it, the doors are, are thrown open before you to live in this newness of life. The life that you now live is by the power of Jesus Christ. You are united to him in his death. You have suffered and, and have therefore ceased to sin. Now, that, that phrase is one that ought to catch your attention, shouldn't it? One who has suffered has ceased to sin. It makes you stop, and if you're like me, you'll consider yourself and you'll say, Wow, I have not ceased sinning. What Peter has in mind is that he's not saying that a believer will no longer ever sin. He is talking about your position in God's eyes and a position where your sins are now forgiven in Jesus Christ. There is a finality about the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He says it is finished. It, it really is finished. Your sins are brought to, uh, to, to be closed out. Think of that debt being burned. Think of it being nailed to the cross. There's a ceasing of that dominion over you. And that, that then helps you to understand how it opens the door to the newness of life. It's not that you will never, ever sin again. The rest of the scripture teaches that. 1 John 1, if you say you do not sin, the truth is not in you. You lie. But there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who laid down his life as a propitiation, the payment for your sins. Here, the all of the New Testament writers saying this very same thing. And it's interesting here that in the context of Peter that Jesus has also given you a sign of this union to him. It's not in this passage, it comes earlier in what we considered last week. Noted that it was a somewhat troubling passage because of the phrase, baptism now saves you. But it is the sacrament that God has given to you to tell you, to communicate to you, to bless you, to know that you are united to Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It speaks to the judgment of God. Just like the Lord used the waters of the flood to bring judgment upon the wicked world of Noah's day, so the waters of baptism are significant of his judgment against sin. But they're also significant of the newness of life. You have been cleansed from your sins by Jesus Christ. 
And he gives you the sacrament to say, you are mine. By my love, by my initiative, you are mine. The waters of baptism signify that your sins are indeed washed away. That only happens because Jesus laid down his life for you. But as Peter hints at here, and as Paul talks about in Romans 6, not only are you united in his death, you're also united in his resurrection. You are made alive now. Therefore, death does not have its hold over you. So Paul, uh, Peter says to arm yourself with this same mind, to arm yourself with the mind of Christ. The first application from this passage is, is to pay heed to this call to arms. Pay heed to the aspect of your life that is, is, uh, is internal, is, is setting your mind on these things of Christ. And so the call to arms is a one to set your mind on Jesus Christ, to meditate on the truth of Jesus' death for you. You can deliberately remind yourself of your baptism. Think of how that is, uh, is Christ's work for you and how you are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. Meditate on these things for the very specific purpose of of. of of riding the wrong thinking that you might have about what God has done for you, and to the aspect of stirring yourself up, to use Dave's words from the, uh, from the uh, Sunday school class, stir yourself up to holy living. I'll use the words of Paul once, once again from Romans 6. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Reckon yourself. Because Christ died for you, and in Christ you are indeed dead to sin. Therefore, reckon yourself dead to sin. Christ has set you free, so live free. The next verses lay out the newness of life that we now live in, and I hope that you'll see that it is radically different than your former way of life. Peter says that the former way was governed by the will of the Gentiles, and the new is governed by the will of God. So just as a simple heading here on the notes, I've called this old ways versus new ways. You look at verse 3, it starts by saying, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Here, remember, Gentiles is not a... uh, is not speaking about an ethnic designation per se. It has in mind a rather kind of a shorthand of talking about a non-Christian worldview. So we might contrast the way of God with the way of the world today. We're more accustomed to thinking that way. Here, much like his call to arms, Peter says, says, brothers and sisters, enough. Enough is enough. Really, it is. Think of what you once were. Think of how futile that was. We have spent enough time doing that. Put that to death. Put it away. 
And he goes on to, to describe it. Just think of how the world boasts of great things. It claims that if you would follow after them, that they will make you happy. That their ways will give lots of excitement to your life. It will bring satisfaction to the longings of your soul. But think back to your former ways of life. And you have to admit that it was empty. It was futile. It was destructive. You know, the world's... When the world talks about it, it's, uh, it's, it's all shiny and new, and it looks exciting. It's more like a, like a package that on the outside looks all, all great, but once you open it up, you find out that it is awful. And I think you'll hear it if you name it for what it is. So the world parades around... The values of self-expression sexually and letting love win. That sounds great, doesn't it? All wrapped up with a nice bow. But you unwrap it, call it what it is, it's lewdness and lust. How about the next? World parades around a party life full of fun. Life of excitement and freedom and uh, going from bar to bar. And uh, waking up in the morning and uh, maybe not even knowing where you are. Ha, 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 isn't that fun? They joke about it. Who is this that I'm next to in the bed? Ha, ha, ha. Call it what it is. Drunkenness. Revelries. Drinking parties. The end of the day, they are what Peter calls abominable idolatries. This would have been literally true in Peter's day because in the ancient world, temple idol worship often included all of these things. There would be temple prostitutes. There would be sexual practices. There would be drunken parties that were part of the bowing down to these graven images to idols. Today, it's not so, uh, uh, not so uh, graphic that way, but they are all of these indications of the idols of our hearts. What's more, in Peter's day and in our day, it is essentially expected that a good citizen will participate in all of these things. It's a mark of of being part of good society. And I think that you probably face similar pressure from the workplace today. Students at OSU are invited and expected to go out with your friends, carousing and having the goal of stupefying yourself in drunkenness is not speaking about the moderate, lawful use of alcohol. This is the stupefaction of drunkenness. 
and the pressure of the world is intense. Do these things to fit in. Do these things and you'll get to schmooze with those who are higher up and maybe you'll get that promotion. Do these things or else. Which leads Peter to talk about the pressure of the fiery trials of the world around us. This has been a theme throughout his letter, but in this context, think of the consequences of breaking from the traditions of the world, the expectations that they have for you to participate in these things. The world actually thinks it's strange that you do not run with them into the same flood of dissipation. They may even speak evil with, uh, about you, says Peter. The world will notice the different life that you live as a Christian. You've been set free from your sin. There's that newness of life that you rejoice in. And as you, as you pursue that newness of life, all of a sudden you run up against world's disapproval, the world's canceling of you for living in a different way. Some will uh, just not associate with you. Some will, be, will push you away. Some will speak evil against you and turn away in revulsion and rejection. And some will literally persecute you for not fitting in. To answer this, Peter reaffirms the sovereignty of God. They may seem to get away with murder against you, but the judge of all things will surely do what is right. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That judge is Jesus. Jesus, who in the last verse of chapter 3 has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. As God and as King, Jesus knows all things and rules over all things. Most important in this passage, he knows his children. And in verse 6, Peter addresses those who were scattered in the Gentile world, those who were suffering this type of persecution, even unto death itself. And he says, Jesus knows this, that the judge will come, judge the living and the dead. But you might hear those that Peter was writing to, but what about those who have already suffered and died? What about them? Where is their vindication? Well, Peter says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. They might be judged according to men, might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. In other words, what Peter is talking about is those who, who, who have died in the faith. And he's speaking to their condition that, that God knew what they were facing and sent missionaries to them to preach the gospel to them so that they might 
come to faith in Jesus Christ. And though they are now dead, the judge of all knows, and they live in his sight, judged by the world, but alive in God's sight. So the Christians in Peter's day needed to know this. And you need to know this, that Christ has suffered for you, that Christ will vindicate you, because that pressure that you face is very real, a pressure that will come and try to convince you that it is just too hard to keep following after Jesus. It would be much easier to revert back into your former way of life, to just fit in. Perhaps you face some things like that. Here in the U.S., that kind of pressure is not as violent as it is in some places in the world, but it is real. I'm going to guess that some of you have faced that. Pressure to fit in those around you in order to, to think that your life would go easier, to think that, uh, that all of these other things would just go away. Believe me, there are also places around the world where the persecution is physical, and it is violent, and it is deadly. Pressure is the same. Pressure to... Renounce Jesus Christ. To renounce his death on your behalf. For what? Brothers and sisters, we have lived long enough according to the will of this world. We have lived long enough pursuing our own pleasures and the emptiness of that. What it has to offer pales in comparison to the inheritance that you have in heaven in Jesus Christ. Arm yourself with this mind. I called you to think deliberately on work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and your justification, sanctification on on how you're united with him in your baptism and, in, and uh, how that, uh, that prepares you to live this life that is distinct from the world around you. Second application I would give to you is to think once more about that heavenly inheritance. And just take some time comparing it to what the world is offering you. offering you lewdness, drunkenness, and revelries. They dress it up and parade it around as looking like something really good to desire, but in the end, it can never come close to the inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ. Enough. Start in your heart 
by identifying those desires of the world that wage war against you. Start there to put them to death. Because Christ has died for you. You are now dead to sin. You set you free from sin, so live free from that sin. God, give us each apprehension of Jesus, our Redeemer, died for us, is raised for us, who lives for us. And may we each reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we hear this call to arms. I pray that by your spirit that we might stand fast in this evil day. I pray, O oh Lord, that today that the reminder of our union with Jesus Christ would come through. That you might remind us of our own baptisms. That the children of the congregation might begin to think more deeply about the fact that they too have been baptized that there is a newness of life in Jesus Christ that you are calling them to. I pray, O oh God, that as we face the temptations of this world, that we may not be drawn away into those things that seem so appealing. Help us to recognize the emptiness of them, the destructiveness of them. Help us to remember that we once walked in them and found no, no satisfaction in them. Instead, O oh God, I pray that we would recognize that we are now alive in Christ, that the life that we now live, the life that has been given to us by your Spirit. Praise you, O oh God, that you have indeed evangelized us, that you have preached the gospel to us, that you've made us alive to Jesus Christ and dead to sin. What may the world offer? God, we cling to you, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Saying earlier from 118, we'll turn there again and sing of that sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. He is the one that has been bound to the altar's horn. The sacrifice satisfies God just, God's justice. And we therefore praise him for that. We are united with him. We live for him. Let's stand and sing Psalm 118E.